so here we are. So good to see everybody. I wanted to talk about practice tonight. And before everyone gets up and runs away, I'm hoping it's not going to be a hard conversation, but we're going to talk about practice because it's the beginning of the year. And I think we should get into this. I think we should talk about practice. I think it's a good thing to talk about. And if you were at the first Wednesday wake-up meeting, I said, or at least intended to say, <laughs> that uh, one of my commitments is to bring in some dialogue into our meditation practice that we don't talk about as frequently. So we can have some conversations that might be on the periphery of our practice and to make them more central to what we're doing. Um, and some of, the con some of those conversations are about things around practice, what to practice, how to practice, how often to practice. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about why that conversation can be challenging, both for teachers and for students. And I'd like to be able to do something different with that conversation with this group um, and see what happens. So I'm hoping to not babble too much and um, get some time for discussion because I'm really interested in hearing what you have to say about your practice and um, how we might best serve our practices here every week. Um, as well as day-long retreats that will be coming up and stuff like that, how we can really enjoy those experiences and use them to help us. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about it. And in some, in some circles, <laughs> so to speak, um, there's an ongoing debate about what meditation practice is, what spiritual practice is in the Dharma, how much we have to practice, or do we even need to practice at all? Um, there is a trend in... American Buddhism, especially newer teachers, um, where there is a need for a branding because there's, it, it's a competitive, there's a competitiveness. Um, and so you'll hear teachers talking about a quicker way of practice, a shortcut to enlightenment, something more direct that requires less effort and less energy, less time. And there's sort of this thing that's happening in Dharma dialogue. Um, and of course, I love to hear, <laughs> anyone loves to hear, oh my God, I can get there quicker. I can do it with less time, less energy. You mean I don't have to sit on the cushion? I can just go do something else? So it really speaks to the hindrances and the unconscious habit patterns that want to say, oh, I don't have to do this, or I don't want to do this, or that aversive part of the mind. So we like to hear, we'd love to hear that we can practice less and get the same uh, out of our experience. And one of the great things uh, one of the Thai forest monks once told me, he said, whenever, <laughs> he said, whenever someone comes to me and asks about practice, especially if they're a Westerner, he says, I have to listen closely because usually what they're asking is, how much can I get away with? <laughs> how much can I get away with? And so the, the hindrances are always trying to get away with something. The unconscious mind is always weaselly. It's always trying to get away with something. It's always going to tell you to practice less or to practice less frequently and do something else or go watch TV or take some intoxicant or whatever the case, case may be. So we have to be on the lookout for that when we, when we talk about our practice and what we want to get out of it. Um, so this is why I want to bring that conversation into the room because it's, um, I'm hearing it more and more. There's this tendency to think that practice is really maybe not even necessary um, in some cases depending on what you're, what you're doing. So I wanted to give it some context and talk about why practice just at the basic level is necessary or why I think it's necessary 
um, based on what the Buddha's insight was, and then just a little bit about habits and how habits are formed and why practice is necessary if we want to change, uh, change habits. So if we, if we take our big context of the Buddha, the Buddha had a discovery, and his discovery was that our present moment experience is something that we co-create, that we have a role. We play a role in shaping our moment-to-moment experience of reality. So anything we're feeling right now in this room, this sense of who we are, we are participating in that. It's not happening to us. It's a combination of the qualities of our heart and mind in this moment reacting to all of the other stuff that's coming up in the room. Temperature, visual input from seeing each other, hearing my voice, all of this stuff is coming in. And then the qualities of heart and mind are hitting that and creating an experience. It's happening so quickly, it feels like it's just the fact. It's just, here's the experience. But in fact, the experience is what the Buddha says is conditioned. That our reality is conditioned and we play a role, a significant role in that experience. So this heart-mind experience that the Buddha talks about is something that, so in the Buddhist sense, it's the good news because if it wasn't something that we participate in, we would just be essentially victims to the experience of our moment-to-moment reality. We wouldn't be able to do anything to encourage happiness or decrease suffering. If it really was completely beyond our control, we would just have to hope that things got better, that our mood would change, or that something in life outside of ourselves, some circumstance would change. So the idea that we're participating is really, really important. It's one of those things we can't forget in the Dharma, is that we are shaping our moment-to-moment experience. Because that is the doorway to our freedom, is that we have a say in how our life goes inside, how we experience our life. We may not be able to control any of the outside circumstances. Sometimes we can, but not always. But we always have the ability to be able to co-create the experience inside. And so I heard another teacher talk about it like a soup. It's like you're learning to make a soup and someone presents you with the broth and then you get to add spices. You don't have a lot of control over the base of the soup, but you can spice it up in your own way. We often think that the spices aren't being added by us. So we try the soup and we're like, oh, that's too spicy. And it happened so quickly, we didn't see ourselves add the spice. And then we taste it and we're like, oh, this is, who put this in here? Like, this is terrible. Like, who would do this? And it's like, how do I get the spice out? I have no control over it. And meanwhile, you're adding more spice and it's just going over and over again. And you've got no way to figure it out. So it's really a great insight that the Buddha had that we have some nexus or leverage in our life for how that experience happens. And that's why we can do things, practice things, learn things to change how we're spicing up the soup. We can do different things and we have some control. Not all control, but some control. We have to be careful not to translate that into a common phrase that we hear in spiritual circles, which is, you create your own reality. The Buddha says we co-create our reality. Creating reality means you create the broth too, that you have control over outside circumstances. And that's a different type of view. The Buddha's view is that we can control some things, but some things are just our past experiences, experiences of others, things we just can't control. And the Buddha talks about, there's plenty of stuff, sickness, weather, things that just happen, other people intersecting our lives that 
We just, it just happens. Maybe it's something that's unpleasant. And the only thing we can do is change the spice after we've been presented with the base of whatever that experience is. So it's not about control. It's about finding out where we participate in reality because we can't control everything. We're just not, we're just not given that power. That steering wheel is out of our hands, but we certainly can pump the brakes and press on some buttons and get some, get some access to changing things. So because of that, we have to participate. Our practice is something we participate in. So in the time of the Buddha, there were a lot of folks that were still involved in spiritual traditions that had Brahmins or priests as an intermediary between their spiritual practice. So other people were going to get them happiness. Other people, you'd have to make an offering or do a ritual or do something. So your happiness was dependent on a spiritual intermediary. In that case, you're not practicing, you're engaging in a different way. But in the Buddha's insight, there's practice. We do something because we are taking back a certain type of control in our life. The only control we really have, which is inside. So that's the first reason why practice or participation really is necessary in this form of meditation. Now, the, the heart-mind qualities, just to put this in Dharma language for those of you who are familiar with it, and most of you are. So these heart-mind qualities that we cultivate we cultivate the factors of awakening and we abandon the hindrances. These are the qualities or the habits that we work with and those are the spices we add. We take out the hindrances and we add the enlightenment factors. And so these qualities, so our enlightenment factors, compassion, wisdom, joy, tranquility, um, equanimity, and then our hindrances, craving, aversion, anger, agitation, those kinds of things. So we're looking to abandon certain spices and ingredients and replace them with other ingredients. These qualities are habits. They're habits of being. So the Buddha saw qualities of heart and mind as things that had been habituated for, by the way we live. So anger is not a thing, it's a way of being. Anxiety is not an emotion, it is a habit. It's a way of reacting to the world. Stress is the product of a reaction. And we build up habits. So the Buddha would say, the habit of anger is arising. The habit of depression is arising. Things arise as habits because we practice relating to the world in a particular way. So when we talk about the enlightenment factors, those are habits. And that's why I usually refer to them as the habits of happiness, because that's really what the Buddha is talking about, is that there's certain qualities of heart and certain qualities of mind that when we cultivate them and they become the ingredients and they're balanced in the soup, then it's delicious. Then you're like, oh, this is pleasant. And now I've played a role in that experience. Now, the challenge, again, the good news is we can change our habits. The bad news is, have you ever tried to change a habit? especially one that's been ingrained since like childhood or had an experience early on that was really impacting good or bad and now you're still working through that habits are incredibly difficult to change so that's where practice comes in so when you think of your habits habits are actually physical so when we engage in activities the brain actually creates neural pathways that light up and are indicative of certain habits. So when we engage in a habit, it strengthens it physically. So when you think you have a particular habit, when something triggers you in the world, and someone says a particular something and you always get triggered in a particular way, that is actually part of your physiology. 
So habits are hard to break because they literally have an energy and a physical component to them. They're real things. They're not just like, oh, it's not just a behavior. It's an actual physicality. And so when we change habits, our brain changes, our chemistry changes. So it's hard to change because it's an actual thing. It's an actual physical thing. It's not like you can just say, have you ever tried just to change a habit overnight? Like, oh, I'm going to stop eating that. How long does that last? Two minutes until you walk back into the kitchen and be like, okay, I'll change it tomorrow. And then you eat the thing anyway. So it's important to understand that our habits are really ingrained. So we can give ourselves some self-love and self-care in understanding that changing habits is not easy. It's not easy. But we, we can change them with practice. Another thing that we, I think it's helpful just from a psychological perspective to understand about habits is that habits fight back. And what I mean by this is physically, our habits have a certain autonomy to them. So in psychology, we have this thing called extinction or extinction burst. And what they found is just before a habit changes, it will arise and push back against the new habit. So there is this moment where it's like, no, I'm not going to go. I'm going to stay. And so it gets worse as you're trying. This is that sense of like you kind of withdraw from the habit. You've, you've got your exercise down. You've been doing it for three, four, five weeks. Everything's starting to go. And all of a sudden your mind's like, oh, exercise is stupid. Why are we doing this? I want to go do something else. The habit talks back, right? And it wants to do what it wants to do. And metaphorically speaking, it, wants to, it still wants to be itself, right? It does not want to change. It doesn't want to be superseded by some other habit. And we experience this directly, right? We experience anytime we've ever tried to change a habit, there's this part of the mind that's like, Meh, maybe I don't want to change that. Maybe I do want to eat the cake or maybe I don't want to exercise or maybe I'm just going to binge watch another series on Netflix, which is how my mind works. So these kind of things are real. This is a real life phenomenon on the nature of practice. So practice, if you look at it in these terms, you can't, we can't leave practice out. Practice has to be a part of the equation because one, we're going to do the work because we're changing the way we participate in our life. We're going to be changing habits because it's the quality of our heart and the quality of our mental phenomenon that we're going to be changing. And as we change them, that becomes the new disposition. So when we practice the habit of mindfulness, we become mindful people. When we practice the habit of compassion, we become compassionate. It becomes a habit. So the more we practice, the easier it gets as the habits come online. So in the beginning, it's more challenging because our old habits, the aversion and the anger. When we first learn skillful speech, most of us experience this kind of thing, especially if you learn NVC. You learn skillful speech, you're mindful enough to see the anger arise, and you don't want to say the thing you normally say, and you have a choice. And you say it and you're like, ah, oh, I'm just going to just call the person the name or say what I'm going to say because the habit isn't online yet, right? And so there's that moment where you have a choice, but the habit isn't ingrained. And so it's like, oh, you fall back into some other type of habit. That's what you used to do, whatever the case may be. Um, so that is, those are two things to keep in mind as we move forward over the next few months in practice that we're going to be changing the way we are in the world. That is the enlightenment. That is the awakening. And it's tough. It's not easy. Anyone who's ever tried to keep the mind on their breath for more than two or three minutes knows that the mind just says, no, I'm not going to do it. It's simple, but the mind wants to go do something else because that's the habit. Once the mind is trained to be with breathing, as practice matures, all you need to do is simply ask it to be there and it will sit and it will rest. 
with the breath. Because now it's like, oh, this is the habit. Okay, I'll do it. Now it's the habit. It's not, it's not, I'm not going to resist it anymore and so on. So those are the two reasons why just talking about um, practice is so important because we have to remember that we're going to be changing our heart mind. We're changing the phenomena from the inside out. And that's really what meditation does. And so one of the things I think is important um, over the last few years, I've noticed that many students don't understand what meditation is supposed to be doing. Like when they're practicing it, they're having an experience, but they don't understand what, this, what the meditation is actually doing. So I want to frame it in this way. The meditation is a training of the heart and mind that creates loving, compassionate, equanimous habits that lead us to awakening. So the meditation is a training exercise to create new habits, new habits of living. The Eightfold Path is a blueprint on how to train the mind and then take those new habits and bring them into the world so you can actually live it. So when we sit down to meditate, we're not just seeking out an emotion. We're not just seeking out stress release. Sometimes we are seeking out particular emotion depending on what we're practicing. But in general, we have to remember that the meditation itself is a, tra it's a training. It's like going to the gym and working particular muscles, muscle groups, combining them, doing some cardio, doing some weights. Meditation is a training for the heart and the mind with the goal to be creating new habits. And the habits are the habits that the Buddha said when cultivated and balanced lead to awakening, the habits of happiness. And those are our factors of enlightenment. Those are the ones that we're familiar with. So one other thing about practice. So I've said this before, because um, I studied with Goenka G for many, many years. And Goenka always used to say, continuity of practice is the secret of success. Continuity of practice. Goenka would say, students are always asking me, what's the shortcut? And he would say, there isn't a shortcut, but the secret of success is continuity of practice. Why would that be the case? For the reasons we just talked about. Continuity of practice is important because whenever you're trying to change a habit, the more you practice the new habit, the quicker that habit is going to light up, the quicker that habit is going to come online. So if I want to do something and encourage a new habit, if I practice that new habit once a week, I'm going to get a particular result for my disposition. If I practice that new habit twice a week, three times a week, four times a week, what's going to happen? Continuity of practice is what allows the meditation to work quicker. Because when you think of it in terms of habits, it's allowing the mind to remember, oh yeah, be mindful. Oh, be mindful. I'm cooking. I can be mindful cooking. Oh, I can be mindful brushing my teeth. Oh, I can be mindful while driving. Reminding the mind to come back to its experience. So this is where we take meditation from the cushion into our day, when we wake up, when we go to bed, in our relationships. We create a continuity of practice and suddenly life becomes the meditation. It's a continuous journey of awakening where we go from meditation as a practice to a meditation as a way of life, as an attitudinal orientation to our world. So the continuity is really important. Each one of us has to determine what kind of continuity is good for us. Like what's the right medicine for us? It's gonna be different day to day, week to week, year to year for each person, how much practice you will need, how much continuity in order to get the results that you want. There isn't gonna be a blueprint that's gonna say 4.5 minutes of meditation on Monday is all you need and then six minutes on Wednesday and then none. 
you're just gonna have to keep experimenting to see what will help with your practice. But continuity is a really big deal. Continuity of practice really is one of those things that I invite everyone to set as a basic goal for your year. If you don't have a daily practice, first goal of meditation is to establish one. It could just be two minutes a day, three minutes a day, but everyone in this room has the capacity for three to five minutes of daily meditation practice. And just that amount will begin to train the mind to come back to the present moment. So that amount of practice is significant because it's daily, because it's continuous. In the beginning stages of practice, continuity is far more important than duration. As you get better at meditation and can, can keep a practice, then the depth of practice is a different type of experience where we begin to ask ourselves, what happens if I meditate for 10 minutes? Well, what happens at the 20 minute mark? What happens if I go on retreat and sit for four hours a day for six days? Then you experience a different type of meditation. But in the beginning stages of practice, the primary goal is always continuity. So I'm gonna invite you all to think about your practice in that way. If you don't have a practice, think about that as your primary goal. A daily practice, three to five minutes, and set your sight on that first. Practice continuity. Just continuity of practice, if you change that, your experience of the Dharma will be significantly different in a few months. So that's the part on, on continuity. Um, one other thing I wanted to say about practice, let's see. As we mature in practice, our experiences are gonna change. Most of the time, the tools and techniques of meditation are similar, no matter how many years you've been practicing. But there are different tools and techniques that come available to you with longer practice. So someone who's been practicing for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, some of the stuff they're doing is gonna be similar, but some of the stuff is gonna be different. <clears throat> Here's why. As you establish continuity of practice, the mind becomes quiet, quieter, and then will be able to be stilled. The quieter the mind, the less frenetic energy that you have in your head so what happens is, in the beginning stages of practice, it's very difficult to see what's causing the suffering because your mind's running all over the place. The wandering mind is running at a really rapid pace. And everyone knows this, right? You sit, you bring breath, and the mind's just off and running. And we say off and running because it literally just jumps into the future and leaps into the past. It clings to regret for 10 minutes and then wonders and worries about something else and it's making a checklist and then arguing with someone and then <laughs> accusing you, you know, then self-deprecation, like, ah, what am I doing? And it's like, you can't track it. There's just no way of tracking it. And, and we all, it's like funny because it's like so true. It's such a crazy thing, you know, the mind is so crazy. So, um, somewhat of a tangent, but this just reminded me, Gwenka used to talk about how, um, you know, beginning meditators, then they come to med their first meditation retreat, and the first thing they, they're coming to seek relaxation and stress release, and the first thing they see is that they have this crazy mind that can't be controlled, and then it dawns on them that their life is being driven by that crazy mind, and everyone in the room is also being driven by a crazy mind that's just kind of out of control and wild. Um, and so, you know, it's funny that way. Um, so... As the mind begins to establish the habit of mindfulness and we can continuously bring the mind back to the present moment, the clarity of what's going on inside 
becomes much easier to read. You can start to see what's causing the mind to wander. Why is the mind stewing in anger? Why is the mind holding on to a conversation that happened three years ago? Why can't I let this go? Why can't I forgive this? Why am I worrying about this future thing? When the mind is wandering, it's hard to see. It's hard to see the cause. But as mindfulness becomes continuous, the mind slows down and you can watch the causes arise and pass away and then you can change them in the moment. You can let go where you couldn't let go before. You can bring the mind back where you couldn't bring it back before. So the first stage of practice is learning to get the mind into the present moment, learning to manage the hindrances. And then you do other things. You start to work on deeper psychological reactivities. You start to look at things like not self and other types of things that are hard to see when there isn't continuity of practice. So in that light, what we have is the opportunity to practice different amounts and different amounts of practice are going to get you different results. Now the challenge with this that I found both as a student as a te- and as a teacher is that because we're humans, it's difficult to talk about practice in the very space that we need to talk about it, which is with our community of practitioners. And a couple things happen when we try and talk about practice. One, we have this idea that if I'm talking to someone who sits more or sits more often and has experience, I haven't had an experience of insecurity, kind of, oh, I'm not doing it right, or they're really good at it and I'm not good at it. So we can have a sense of shame that can be triggered when we talk about our practices with each other. We can have a sense of insecurity that arises when that happens. The opposite of that is someone who then brags about their practice. Oh, I can sit for this amount. I've done all these retreats and I've done this and I'm great at this and I've got lights going like this and lightning bolts are coming down and I'm talking to devas and all kinds of stuff is happening. And this happens all the time in spiritual communities. This is like totally spiritual community culture. So, and it's human beings doing what human beings do, right? It's like another thing that we're attached to and so we're gonna exaggerate and or interpret it in a way. Um, So, There is a sort of recoil oftentimes in sharing our practice because we don't really learn and we don't practice sharing skillfully. And because we don't practice sharing skillfully and we don't talk about how to do that, we lose the opportunity to coach each other and support each other and cheer each other on with our practice. And so that's just one of those things that I've noticed over the years. I would like to be able to, over time, establish a way for us to talk about our practices openly and honestly and skillfully so we can get the support. Because studies show in psychology that if you're in a group and you're all doing a similar activity, even if there's no verbal or physical communication, everyone in the group doing the activity will get more out of the activity and become more skillful in it in a group. So just coming together in a big group like this and practicing improves our meditation practice. But sharing our meditation practice, having somebody to talk about our meditation practice with in a way that feels enlivening and supportive is really important. And it's something I think we've overlooked in the Dharma is is working consciously to create a language where we can all share our practice in a way that's happy and healthy and skillful and that helps us grow. One thing about this in this kind of group, one of the big fears that teachers have about practice is that If I start talking about something that would only be noticeable to students who've had several years of practice, 
then people who've just come for the first time or haven't practiced much or aren't having those experiences suddenly might feel lost or like, oh, I'm not good enough. Again, that, that sense of being triggered, like these people must be great and enlightened and I'm certainly not because I've never had that experience or I feel like I should have had it by now. And so that becomes a difficulty. On the other side of the equation, teachers struggle because if we only teach the basics week to week over and over and over again, students who've been practicing for years completely get left out of maturing in practice because they're no longer being talked to at the level of practice that they're at. And so teachers have this kind of balance between how do you sit in front of a group and talk about practice in a skillful way where both beginning, intermediate, and people who've been doing it for a significant amount of time can come together in compassionate connectivity without feeling either jealous or left out or, or whatever the case may be. So in general, when a teacher faces that problem, they go for just teaching beginning practices because they figure somehow or another more mature practitioners will find, will find their way. And another part about it, it's easier to get a bigger group in a room if you're making sure that you're always talking at the most basic level about the practice. So I wanted to bring that into the space because this is what happens oftentimes with teachers. And one of my commitments is to make this group accessible for multiple levels. I want to make sure that people who've been practicing for some time can have more advanced tools that you're probably more than ready for at this point. And that beginning meditators can hear those teachings and be inspired by them and give them something to work towards without it being a detriment to their, to their experience. And so I have, it's a sort of a dilemma and I'm looking forward to figuring it out, but um, I wanted to invite you into that conversation. I would like to have a conversation about that, how we might just begin that conversation of talking about our meditation practice with each other in ways that can be healthy and supportive where everybody, no matter what stage of practice, gets the true support of Sangha and doesn't get left out and their practice doesn't sort of like get in an eddy over here somewhere and start to spin because people are spending a lot of time sitting and I want to make sure you're getting the most out of your practice for the time that you spend. So one more note and then we'll break up into groups and have a little discussion here. Um, for the time we sit here, right? For the time we sit here. That's another question because in a, in a meditation, some people are going to have a harder time with 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And so a future thing I'd like to talk about is how can we use this weekly group to push ourselves into longer practice? Because Wednesday might be your only day to sit for a longer period of time and get in touch with experiences you've never had before. It'll be much easier to do deeper practice here in a group than it will be at home by yourself. So as I'm just telling you where the conversation is going, I would like to talk in the next few weeks about how we want to sit together week to week. How do we want to do that so everyone gets nourished? And how can we use Wednesday as an opportunity to push our practices to a deeper, more satiating level uh, without making it too challenging where it's uncomfortable or you're like, oh, this is just too much. I don't want to do 35 minutes of meditation or whatever. Today we sat for 35 minutes. So that tells you what that amount of time feels like. Um, so what I'd like to do, we break up into groups of three and just have a conversation about what, what I just asked, which is essentially how might we move forward and, and create a conversation around practice that's healthy and secure and safe for everybody. So just five minutes, just what comes to mind for me having said that? Just get in pairs of three or four and just whatever comes to mind. I'll ring the bell in a few minutes.
Krista was saying that we could use this as an opportunity for mindful practice, like mindful sharing of our experience can be skillful speech, right? And we can learn. And this is exciting to me because I feel like this is really in alignment with my teaching style and also some of the things I've wanted to bring into my teaching for a while but haven't had an opportunity, which is helping us gain fluency in the Dharma, understanding how to talk about practice in Dharma language and really understanding the power and the potency of what is a hindrance and why is it called that? And why is it an enlightenment factor and not something else? Because all the language has an incredible depth of psychology and experience that when you start learning how to talk in the language, you learn to identify things in the interior world that you before you never could even see without the words. And so we can, we can learn to talk to each other in Dharma and be empathetic and listen and be a compassionate ear for our struggles and for what, what's coming up. And like you were saying, Kate, it could be a new level of connectivity where it, that we are in a group practicing, but our inner world is often not, not talked about um, so much. It's <clears throat> yeah, it's very private. And some stuff, of course, can remain private, and that's totally sure. fine. Yeah, and certainly, yes. Um, and that might be a part of how we learn to practice skillfully. There might be a too much sharing, you know, moment where you were, you're like, okay, that's too, but, but what I was sharing in our group was that I've had the real privilege of being in the Dharma as long as I've had with certain friends who we all got into the Dharma at the same time. And for 20 years, we've been practicing together and going on retreats together. And when we get together, a lot of our conversation is, how's your practice going? And I've just I sort of took advantage of the fact that I had people there who had my best interest in mind about my practice and learned to listen for my, my practice and were able to really support me where I could say, oh, this thing's coming up. And they're like, well, that all, you always run away from that thing. And they get to know your practice and so they can help you with your blind spots and they can be loving when you can't be loving towards yourself. And they can be, you know, the Buddha says the counterpoint to doubt as a hindrance is Sangha. Is Sangha, that is the antidote for doubt. So I'm looking forward to talking more about this as we move forward, as we practice and learn to do that, where we can gain some fluency and use it as a mindfulness practice and be able to uh, be able to do that. Because I think it could be very exciting for our practices. I think we'll find some growth and development um, that might not otherwise be accessible through that. Um, um, this week, I would just invite you to, to be thinking about this, thinking about practice. If you have not established a daily practice, I'm going to throw out a challenge. For the next seven days, two to five minutes a day, every day until you come back, and share when you come back how that was to try and make sure your practice was done every day for at least a couple of minutes. So I'm throwing that out there as a start for our sharing and our practice. That's where you start if you don't have a daily practice, a few minutes a day, and that is really transformative. I'm going to be going to Brighton Bush with Robert, so I'm leaving Friday. I'll be back Wednesday. I'm going to be coming back into town and coming straight here. And so we'll see what comes out of that. Um, but I would like to continue this conversation, certainly. 